0: Shalom Aleichem, welcome back to Beyond the Details, this is Ilan Mazer, together with
1: Ephroni Schlesinger,
0: and today we are going to take a look at some of the fundamental ideas behind the, what we call the new holidays that we've been celebrating during the month of Iyar, the holidays of Yom Atzmud, Independence Day for Israel, as well as the upcoming Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day, this is going to be this coming Sunday, and try to understand a little bit about the celebration of the Jewish people's return to the land. Now it's clear, if you look through the Torah and the prophecies within the Torah itself, in the, the Brit, the Tochacha between the Jewish people and, and God, as well as throughout the prophecies, throughout all of Tanakh, we find that the return to the land of Israel and us coming back to the land after such a long exile is a fundamental tenet of belief. And our question that we would like to understand today is, Why, in a religious connection to God, would a land be something that is fundamental? Why does it matter? Why do we need to confine a God which is non-confinable, infinite, to a finite piece of land specifically? Now, it just reminds me of a story uh, many years ago. Uh, in Yeshiva HaKotel, there was a, a, a Pesach Seder that was meant for families that don't come from a religious background. And it was over. Um, it was a Friday night Shabbos and then sh- Saturday night Seder. And Shabbat HaGadol was also spent in Yeshiva. And it was a very beautiful, um, uh, beautiful time for many of these families. And at Sudash Lishi, there was a question and answer together with, um, with the Rosh Hashiva. And remember that one of the questions was that, as you can imagine, Shiva HaKotel overlooks the Temple Mount. And one of the participants, who doesn't come from a religious family, was standing at the window looking out at the Temple Mount, which is one of the most contentious political areas within, in the world. And he heard one of, the, um, one of the students, who was a married student with his five-year-old son, looking over at this spot. And he says to his son, hopefully next year, next Passover, we'll be able to give the Korban and Pesach on that spot and be able to eat the Korban and Pesach in the way that the Seder is supposed to be. And he was pointing out to that mountain. And this participant, who again comes from a non-religious background, turns to the Rosh Yeshiva at the end of this weekend of, of inspiration and asks him, explain to me, I don't understand. Listen, I really enjoyed everything that we did here. I enjoyed the Jewish experience, I enjoyed the songs, I enjoyed the, the, the Torah and the ideas and the uplifting inspiration and everything that's going on, I, I'm, I'm really connected. However, I don't understand your obsession with that spot. If, if we just decided that we could give the Korban Pesach and build the third temple 500 meters to the left there'd be no issue whatsoever. No contention, no conflict. Why do we need to have it exactly in that space? What difference does it make? Why does it have to be there and not 500 meters to the left? Now that's the question about the spot of the temple, the capital city being Yerushalayim, as well as our land specifically being the land of Israel. Why do we need that specific land? Why can it not be somewhere else? And why can Jews not connect to God and worship God equally in every part of the universe, which was all created by the one Almighty God?
1: So, just to uh, add a couple additional points about the element of the significance of this question and how it impacts the holidays that Yom Atzemod, which passed, Yom Yerushalayim, uh, coming up. Um, there's kind of two two dimensions when talking about the establishment of new holidays or the implications regarding saying Hallel to discuss when it comes to Yom Yerushalayim and Yom Atzma'ut. And that is the pure halachic dimension of just the question, can you make a new holiday? Can you decide we're going to say Hallel? Can it be with a bracha? Can it be after the Shemona Esrei? Like it is by the other holidays. And then there's the additional dimension where we take things out of the context of the pure halachic debate and ask whether or not these particular holidays have some additional significance or additional considerations that need to be taken. So for example, there have been plenty of you know holidays that have popped up or have been celebrated in different Jewish communities throughout history. Purim Frankfurt is a famous one, the Rambam mentions that he... Uh, had a you know had a had a major salvation and he fasted on that day, but then in future years he uh, made a holiday for himself, and around those holidays and those you know historical precedents, a lot of the halachic discussion has been based. But there is definitely a unique consideration above and beyond those questions to take into account for our purposes of Yom Tzomut and Yom. Yerushalayim, since they represent particular holidays which have been spoken about, or particular significant days which have been spoken about for thousands of years already. It's not just specific events.
0: Right. Not necessarily days, but events of the return, the Jewish people to the land of Israel, the return or the rebuilding of Yerushalayim, things, I would say, not even just that have been spoken about, but things that we spoke about on a daily basis as individuals and as a people for thousands of years, meaning the words... The open my eyes to be able to see our return to Zion was said three times a day and sometimes four and sometimes five times a day by every single praying Jew for thousands and thousands of years. And that's not the only expression that we say. We say, that we say, blow the grand shofar in order for us to return back to Zion. And, and every time we eat bread, we also say, Yerushalayim, build you up, Yerushalayim. So these are things that we've been asking for, not just a specific salvation, but events and rebirths that we've been praying for on a daily
1: basis for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, uh, true, but I would even, I think, take it one step further, which is that the event has not only been discussed or asked for or prophesied about, but it's actually been discussed in several places in the context of a holiday which will be established when these things happen. So it's not just a theoretical question of, is, you know, can we make a holiday around this event is, is this the holiday we've actually referenced for the last 2,000 years? So a classic example is the Gemara and Baruch, which speaks about the, you know, the, there's a debate as to whether or not we're going to mention Yitziat Mitzrayim, Latid Lavo, uh, in, 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 in Yimot Mashiach. And the question is, you know, why would we not <laughs> mention Yitziat Mitzrayim? It's a mitzvah, right? Yitziat Mitzrayim, especially, you know, on, on, on Seder night. And I mean, what's the havamina? Why would you not have this? And the Gemara goes on to say that, well, because the the miracle of the final salvation, where God brings Klal Yisrael, uh, not after two hundred years from one nation into Eretz Yisrael, but after. Th- you know, potentially a much longer period of time from across the world to Eretz Yisrael, that's going to be a miracle that so clearly trumps that of Yetziat Mitzrayim that, that it just, the, the salvation of Yetziat Mitzrayim will be seen as insignificant and almost forgotten. Meaning, we discuss the idea of Kibbutz Galiot being a holiday that overshadows Pesach for the last 1,500 years. Right? So it's not just a question of can we make a new holiday? Is this fit to make a new holiday? But it's also a question of Chazal spoke about the holiday of kibbutz Galiot. Is is this that one? And if that is, then that should have major significance in the conversation. So I think so we're we're speaking about two questions. One is
0: clarifying the days that we're celebrating or the events that we're celebrating and trying to see whether or not they fit into the paradigm of previous Uh, ...foretold events and previous foretold celebrations that we'll have because of it and trying to see whether or not they match. But I think that what we started off with in the fundamental question of why is this something that we're looking forward to and why is this something that we should celebrate... Why is the return of the Jewish people to a specific land something that is so significant to us that we pray about it, that we hope for it, and then retroactively we're going to celebrate it once it happens? Why? Why do we have to be in a land? What is wrong with a Jewish experience of being in, in every land around the world and following the mitzvot that apply and living a life of of connection to God and living a life of spirituality and living a life of Torah mitzvahs, why is this even something that we are even looking forward to? Now, obviously, we can say, well, we know that the Nevim are looking forward to it and we know that our prayers pray for it. But when I pray for, I would say, when I say, um, when I pray for repentance and forgiveness from God that's self-evident when I pray for for refuah and health from God it's self-evident for parnassah for, for sustenance it's self-evident but why am I praying to leave my home my land where I've been living for for the past 2,000 years outside of Israel and this at many times in a very comfortable state so obviously many times not in a comfortable state but many times in a very good state and, and a very fulfilling life why is it that on an ideal basis, what we're looking forward to is a Judaism that includes the return of the exiles to a specific land and living in that specific land as a people. Why is that what we need in a life of Torah?
1: So the, so the Ramban uh, addresses this point, I think, directly, actually, in last week's Parsha. Uh, I guess it depends where you're listening, in Eretz Yisrael of but for Herod it was last week's parsha uh, in the Chukotai, in the context of the brachot and the klalot. So the Ramban mentions that up until now, all the brachot and the Torah has been designated towards individuals. And here the brachot and the klalot are meant as um, you know, blessings for the nation, the nation as a whole. And then he goes on to explain the significance of the nation as a whole either receiving a bracha or receiving some sort of punishment. And his answer, I think, is kind of the platform for, you know, beginning to address the question of the significance of being in a specific place. He, what he mentions is, you know, if a Qadosh Baruch Hu gives the bracha to an individual, a tzaddik, a righteous person who is following in his ways, doing his mitzvot, and he has you know, relatively good health and a long life, and he's you know, relatively stable financially. So that is nice, but for any tzaddik that you have who's living a nice life, you can find a russia who's <laughs> living a nice life as well. For any tzaddik who lives to 100, you find a russia who lives to 100. For any tzaddik who's healthy, you find a russia who's healthy. It's not so apparent that God is involved, it's not self-evident to the very least, that God is involved just because someone is doing good things and also having a reasonably, you know, good life. But says the Ramban, when it, this takes place on a national level, it's the hand of God in the world is undeniable. What he says is, you can always, for any individual tzaddik, find a Russia who has everything he has and maybe more. And try to undermine whatever you, whatever you think you're proving. Says the Ramban, now imagine this. Imagine an entire nation following God in one specific land, and everyone in that land is healthy, and everyone in that land, the, the the land, every single year receives the exact amount of rain that they need, in the times that they need, and everyone in that land, uh, and and there's peace in that land, right? And everyone, and and all the good things that you would hope for in the life of the individual, are taking place on. On a national level, peace, health, prosperity. He says that you're not going to find an equal to compare it to. That's going to be such a clear, a clear uh, uh, representation of God's hand in the world that's going to be undeniable because you can't you can't find another country or another nation which every single member or which as a collective, all of these things would be the case.
0: So what you're saying is that the land of Israel, or the more specifically, I think what you're saying is statehood is meant as a means to accomplishing our goal as the chosen people in a in a more... Um, it, or just being able to achieve our role, our destiny as the chosen people. Our, our role as the, as the chosen people, according to this paradigm, is to demonstrate God's presence in the world, and the way to accomplish that, or God's providence on the world, is, only, is not on the individual level, but rather as a national level, and the way to achieve that is creating a state that not only are there individuals in that state that are following religious customs, but rather the state as a whole is, is living up to these divine values and thereby achieving divine providence, and that providence, both for good and for bad, says the Ramban, uh, meaning you can see it in both sides, and it's clear from the Mesukim that you can see it from both sides, the good and the bad, that providence is present within the national, um, national light, and that is the purpose of us creating a state.
2: I can ask a question, but if we're trying to demonstrate that we're a chosen people per se, wouldn't it be easier to demonstrate that to the nations of the world by maybe living amongst the nations of the world, perhaps, and actually being, you know, spread out and go across to all the four corners of the earth, and show the mitzvah and show that how, how we're God's chosen people and that we can be such great, we can accomplish such great things? And you know, obviously the classic Jewish stereotypes, but but like, what what advantage is there in specifically being a nation in a land? And specifically, this land, uh, that, right. that's like so, the, the right. connection so, I'm not so, getting.
0: So, so I think, I meaning you're asking, you asked three questions there. The first question being, is this the best way, the way the Ramban exp, uh, or, or describes the way that we should achieve this goal, is this the best way? Is living in a land the best way to achieve our, uh, our destiny or our mission of being the light unto the nations? So this was, and, and then I think that, that the second question, this was the question that I also felt uh, on, on the way that Rav Ref- was answering this question, is what you've, what you've e- explained is why we need a nation, but not necessarily why we need a land on a specific level. It could be a nation anywhere in the world. We could be as as was historically uh, proposed, we can be a nation in Uganda and be able to achieve that exact same paradigm and that exact same um, that goal. Uh, so I think right. That's the second question of why specifically a land. But to go back to the first question of are we and this are we able to achieve this mission of being a people who represent God in the world and demonstrate God's providence in the world. Um, uh, that, that's something that that was a uh, was was a famous argument between um, two great leaders in the end of the eighteen hundreds between Rav Hirsch and Rav Cook. and Rav Hirsch did did write in a number of places that we are able to ch- achieve the goal of Or Lagoing, being a light into the nations via the individual's um, actions and behaviors and di- divinity spread out around the world and we're able to achieve that there and even goes as far to say that once we left the land of israel that became this next stage within our mission of being the light into the world by demonstrating as individuals but i think the ramban does answer that and meaning we'll get into of cook's explanation of why that isn't so in a moment but i think the the, what but at least the way i understood what what, what rovofoni is saying is that providence is more noticeable on a national level than it is on an individual level. Because when I look at, when I say, oh, that tzaddik is doing incredibly well and you can see how much blessing they have by being a tzaddik, you're able to point to another individual where it's not so. But when you look at things, it's like the difference between looking at anecdotal uh, evidence versus looking at data. When you look at data, you're able to see the big picture. When you look at one individual, it could be that there's one person who dresses like a tzaddik and knows and is very scholarly, but is a very, you know, a, 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 a very arrogant and reprehensible individual. So you're not necessarily able to 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 demonstrate the power of Torah life unless it's on a national level. And Rav Cook. I think, takes it to the next stage. It's it's similar, it's a similar concept, but in a book called Ma'alach Haideot B'Yisrael, where it's it's a historical essay on the purpose of the Jewish people in solving, um, I would say, fundamental issues within humanity. And Rav Kook explains that what the Jewish people are meant to, to do as a nation, as opposed to as individuals, is by demonstrating the utility of living a divine life on in every aspect of being and as individuals we could demonstrate a divine life in only very specific areas by um, by being saints by being leaders by being teachers by being uh, spiritual individuals but if you take a nation that has every aspect of life from military to economics to political life to culture, to art, to writing, to music, to academics, to intellectuality, to cleaning the streets and uh, and and how you deal with social welfare, and you create a nation that lives by Torah values in all of those aspects, then you're able to show the divine on a much wider scale than if you only show it by individuals. Individuals are only able to reflect a specific aspect of, of the divine, while a nation is able to um, create this richer and, and larger picture. And therefore, the, 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 the nation of Israel as a state is meant to be the reflection of the divine life within the world. And the only way to achieve that at all levels of being, at all levels of life, from in all aspects much bigger than just religious expression being a religious Jew and following Torah mitzvahs, but how to create ideally an economics an economy that is based upon divine principles and Torah principles create a military that is based upon Torah principles now that was the ideal that Rav Kook was speaking about when he actually said the words that Medinat Israel is kisei Hashem Ba'odam, the state of Israel is meant to be the the throne of god in the world and what he's trying i think i think what he's trying to say is that is that this the state is meant to give a physical manifestation in all elements of life to the divine ideals that we are striving for
2: yeah even if we take that as, as as true that the state is the way for it to best express our godly values as Torah following Jews, and I guess this ties back into the question that Reverend Froni was asking before, like there's been much obviously controversy over the last hundred years of Zionism, of modern Zionism, and as we I mean to the naked eye, the Yisrael Israel does not seem to be purely following Torah values. So even if we want to say that that the state is the is the finest structure in which to express those values. Who's to say that this state is what expresses it? And perhaps you could you could say that the, the cost is not even worth it, right? The cost of potentially doing a Chilul Hashem is not even worth that. And maybe maybe it's just best to wait for some other kind of vindication, uh, whether that's a Navi or a Mashiach, to wait until we wait for an, a, another stage in which we can finally come back to Eretz Israel and then establish a state that is truly based upon the values of the Torah and HaTar Shubar So
1: I think that... I think there's maybe some misconceptions, perhaps, about... Not necessarily misconceptions, but, uh... But I think there is some, perhaps, misinformation or ignorance just more broadly about the redemption process uh, that if we can clarify, I think a lot of those questions uh, uh, either fall away or, you know, we're a little bit more satisfied with, with the answers. So what I mean by that is as follows. Um... This idea that the redemption is going to be a miraculous instantaneous or an open miraculous instantaneous god-led process is something that at the very least gets mixed messages throughout tanakh meaning there seems to be perhaps at least that model proposed but in many, many other places, and maybe even primarily, a different model of the redemption is posed, which is a which is a model of a slow, gradual, natural, and even human-led process. Right? This, most famously the the Gamara Yushalmi Brachot speaks about the redemption in this uh, in this light, which is a slow, gradual process, uh, like sunrise, where it's very uh, where it's very where it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a natural phenomena that happens slowly over time.
0: So I, don't, I would only push back on one, on, on, on one part of what you're saying I, I think that there's a lot of sources that demonstrate it being a gradual and even naturally seeming process but I don't necessarily like your definition of God-led versus human-led a natural process could be God-led as well, and, and and just be and like sunrise. Even your example of sunrise is definitely not a human-led process, um, or even a chariot-led process, as many mythologies tend to believe. But
1: it's a God-led process, even though it's natural. Sure, sure, and I think that that's an important point. It's an important distinction to make in the eyes of you know the the onlookers you know, one may seem more godly than the other, or one more may seem more god-led than the other, but certainly, I, you know, I agree that a, a process that is, you know, uh, at least seemingly initiated by human beings is every bit as godly. It's just a different facet of God's uh, involvement or intervention in, in, in the world. And the, the, the contradictory models are really brought up for discussion in the Gemara where they ask, you know, pretty much explicitly whether the Ge'ula is just going to come uh, uh, automatically, whether it's going to, whether God's going to bring it uh, very clearly, whether it's contingent upon Tshuva, and it seems from the conclusion of that Gemara that uh, it's not necessarily contingent upon tshuva, but. I'll try to, I'll try to uh, say it a little bit better, basically, there are many who are of the opinion that there are essentially two models for, for the Ge'ula. Right? One whereby all of Klal Yisrael does tshuva, and then we have kind of a miraculous process similar to Yitziat Mitzrayim, where it's, again, not to say that uh, Yitziat Mitzrayim is the only one that God is involved in, but His God is very clearly involved in and there are miracles that define nature and uh, the sort. So, and then there is a process whereby Kali Shal does not do Chuva. And then the process, and then the Gula process seems more uh, human-initiated, is more slow, is more gradual, and is more apparently natural. So I want to so, basically so, so, put those two models on the table. But a,
0: a, and just to, to push back a little bit on the first model that you gave, I, I, I think that you that in order for somebody to take the position that Joe did in his question, that if things are going wrong and the state does not seem to be going in the right direction and things are even even not within the values of Torah, therefore, it must mean that this is not the process that was spoken about because it's not like Yitziat Mitzrayim, which was, as you said, the exile from Egypt being a miraculous and, and, and godly, pure, most, most pure and linear and clear redemption then it's obviously not the real redemption. The only way somebody can actually say that with conviction is if they're either illiterate or chose to ignore all of Tanakh as part of their educational upbringing. And the reason why is because if you look at Tanakh, was leaving Egypt, even with those miracles taking place, for the people themselves, was it a linear process where they were all divine Jews and they were all living by the ideals of Torah from the time of the redemption from Egypt to the point where they built the Beit HaMikdash? It, it was, if you if you go through any part of Tanakh, you will realize that people were not living up to the ideal even with the clear intervention of God through miraculous and supernatural miracles. And so even within, within we were... In, in a certain sense, we were supposed to go to Eretz Yisrael right after we finished the book of Vaikra, where right after we were, we, we, we left the, we left Sinai and we were on the, our way to the land of Israel. And that was right after receiving the Torah at Sinai. And we sinned and went in different directions. And there was issues of political issues with Korach HaMoshen. There was issues of whether or not they wanted to go in the land with the, with the spies. And there was issues of complaining and, and, and questioning divine, uh, the divine, divine power and divine uh, providence. And there were many, many different issues up until the point where they landed the land. Now, they did have a mishkan. But does anybody know how long it took to build the Beit HaMikdash after they entered the land?
1: Between four and five
0: hundred years. Closer to five. And so we're in pretty good shape. If we have not yet built the Beit HaMikdash in 74 years, I think we're in pretty good shape compared to what it was the first time after that miraculous behavior that you spoke about as being the, 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 uh, the, the most clear way of redemption. So even the Torah does not, and Tanakh does not fear processes that are very up and down and back and forth. The Torah, the Tanakh in general, does not speak about processes only in a linear fashion. And if you see any failure, that means that God is not involved. God is involved even within the failures and the ups and downs. All of Sefer Shoftim, the first few hundred years that the Jewish people were in the land of Israel after Yitzhah Mitzrayim, was a lot of ups and downs. That's what the entire book is about. That we go up, and we, we go down and we get conquered and we do tshuva and then he brings a a a, um, a, a savior and and then we return back and we go back to God and then we a couple generations it's all ups and downs and then let alone up to the point where Shlomo Amalech builds the builds the base of it's not a linear process there's a lot of failure along the way so I think that we have to ask uh, uh, a, a a very direct question if that's the case that Throughout our history, and throughout Tanakh, which is clearly seen as a divine process, and divinely led forward, there are lots of failures on our point, on our part. Where did the notion that things that are godly have to be perfect come from? Why did you have an assumption, this is my question back to you, Joe, why did you have an assumption that if people aren't following Torah to the, to the letter of the law, it means that God's not involved? What gave you that, that, that impression? Where in your education of learning anything throughout Tanakh and anything throughout Gemara, Chazal, etc., gave the impression that human beings are not given the choice to either live up to the godly process or not, and that still means that God's involved within that process? So I think, to,
1: to be fair... mean my question can... for Joe. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: if you want me to give my, my, my answer, I mean, so I, I, think, I think a stance that many like to take... Um, Tenuous, might it be, would be that well we're basing it off what, what the Gedolei Hador say, right? And the Gedolei Hador, um, over the last, over the, the, his, the history of modern Zionism, have not necessarily been so in favor, um, you know, necessarily in the in the creation of the state at all, um, or as you know, rah rah about the state, even despite its its, its you know current nature as not as godly as it as it maybe it should be. So yes, maybe from the perspective of the Tannach you make a great argument but from the perspective of today, the, the living giants of torah who are not always who, who have not jumped on board what what would be their hesitation and i guess i, I, I guess the masses also might have that concern why why are the, the gudolim not jumping on as well
0: so it's very easy to use the word gudolim yeah absolutely and 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 point, <laughs> and, point and, and and push meaning as long and and also i think that it's 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 important to to whenever you're talking about important topics, it's important to focus in on what are they against? Which aspect are they against? Are they against, because if let's say you're against one area of the way that the state is being run, then it's, it's then that doesn't mean that the whole foundation of what's happening is not. so. Uh, Rav Revafroni, when we were talking right before we started, he was telling me about a piece in Ravavaja that writes explicitly that Kogdole Israel, Rubo Kekulov Dole Israel, at the beginning of the state believed that it was a Khalta de Geula. Now, it's very it's very hard to not believe that that the return of the Jewish people in the building of the state is not a Khalta de Geula. So at least at that level. Now, I think that the area in which in which there is the most contention. Now, there are Gdole Yisrael that believe that it's not a and there's a lot of theological arguments, and we should have a, a podcast on its own about the machlokis between, um, let's say, the world of Satmar and Vayom Moshe and uh, and and even Chabad within understanding the Gula process versus um, the Gra's writing, and Rav Kook's writing, and Rav writing, and the, the et etc., cetera, etc., cetera, et cetera, many others. But I think that on, a, on the most... On a, on, on, on a practical level today, I think the, 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 the serious note of contention is how much should we be involved in the negative aspects of the state?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How much should we join together with the secular Zionists and their, and their goals and, and help them build the state in their image as, and try to influence from the out, inside versus how much should we influence from the outside? you can see that the torah world has clearly moved over to the land of israel and lives in the state of israel and as is part of this return and you know 60 years ago 50 years ago even 30 years ago you wouldn't be able to clearly say that the torah world has moved over to living within the state of israel so i think that it's clear that the Gdole israel would disagree or many gdolets on. There's definitely a machloket, a lot of contention around how much to be involved in the state when there are so many negative aspects. But whether or not the state is part of a godly process or not, I do not think that there's that much of a machloket or as large of a machloket as it would be perceived.
1: I want to just respond to the question of where this impression comes from. Because it's correct that if you look throughout Tanakh, you notice that things take time, that there are certainly a lot of ups and downs in any given process, and that in no way indicates the Kodesh Baruch Hu's lack of involvement. But that's not to say that the ge'ula ha'atidah, the ge'ula shlishit, has never been spoken about differently than even the processes that we're familiar with in Tanakh. Meaning, if you look back at Tanakh and try to develop a hashkafa on how Kodesh Baruch Hu leads... Uh, you know uh, uh, processes, even when he's doing open miracles or not. So you may under you you may come to the conclusion that yeah, things take time, you know. But there has been discussion around the final redemption, uh, both in contemporary but but even um, you know older sources that would seem to indicate that sure, but the final redemption is going to work differently. For example, so. You can, I guess you can point to the open miracles. You can point to does it say the. To the open the, You can. Sorry, where, where where does it? So the actually I actually have it in front of me. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Micha and Zion says Ki made Sechah Me er Right, like the days of Yitzya Mitzrayim. I'll show you great wonders, and the commentaries there uh, uh, pick up on the the the, the tremendous open miracles. Uh, that uh, were present at the time. Rashi what does the
0: Gemara say about that Pasuk in regards to whether or not those miracles will take place? It's also in It's just a few daf prior to the one that you mentioned before. What does the Gemara say? It, it, it says that it if... It, and, and, and Micha was talking about the second redemption in the time of Ezra, not that it's not about the third redemption as well, but it says it's, it's talking about the second redemption, and it should have happened like that, but... Chet Garam. What Chet? We didn't return at the time of Ezra. And so, therefore, because we did not heed the call of returning to the land after 70 years of, of, of exile, instead of seeing Niflaot like Mitzrayim, we didn't see Niflaot and it was done through a natural process. So I think that the question is, is this a Lichatchila situation or Bidievet situation of whether or not we're seeing miracles or not seeing miracles? Doesn't 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 prove whether or not it's the Geula process or not. It just proves whether or not it, sh- it could be that ideally we should be seeing miracles. But even the Gemara that quotes that Pasuk and Micha realizes that if we don't see miracles, it's still the process. It's just not happening the way it should be because of our... Uh, in that case, our inability to heed the call of redemption and return back to the land of Israel, and most Jews, as we know, stayed in Babel and didn't
1: come back in the time of Ezra. Sure, but uh, but that, that's true. But I think that's already somewhat of an answer, right? Meaning, I proposed the two models that we saw earlier, and what you suggested was that, well, you know, was that uh, was that even if it were to be, you know, through tshuva, and even if it were to be through clear miracles, you know. Still, that's what the, all the precedent uh, in Tanakh looks like, where it's uh, you know where it's a struggle, where it takes time, and I'm saying that's already an answer. It, there are psukim, there are gemaras that speak about it being an instantaneous, perhaps miraculous process. Now, to answer up those gemaras, sure, there are two models. There's the model where we do things without hate and the models where we do things. With the chet, then that's already an answer. But it, it tells us maybe where some of these misconceptions came from. Also, a pasuk in, in, in Tehillim where David Melach suggests aretz, right? That we're not actually going to lavo. We won't inherit the land through uh, through our sword. We won't need to, right? right? We're just the, the you know just the 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 or panim is going to conquer all the land for us. We're not going to need our swords. We're not going to need There's certainly a description about the geula that happens in that way, that we can understand this may be where some of our education process, you know, comes from. That all being said, if you look deeper into it and you ask, well, what happened? And does that mean this isn't the geula? No, certainly not. And Chazal very often address these points already and mention that's a possibility. It's one way things could happen, but not the only way things could happen. In fact, it it confuses me a little bit uh, when we get back to the topic of the gedolim and and what they say. So it it almost confuses me a little bit how many of them latch on to one of two or one of multiple ways of the ge'ula happening that are that are explicitly mentioned in Chazal and assume this is the only way it could happen and, 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 and they can deny everything that's happening in front of their eyes because of the ONE option that the Gemara mentions that it could happen. Meaning, you mentioned the, the, the Chabad street, so the Rebbe Melibavitch was convinced there would be no ge'ula without Chuva. There would be no ge'ula without Chuva. Right, this is the with the uh, Rebbe Milibovich. One of the the claims that he made, he said, "We say in Mosav, Gilinu It's because of our sins that we were exiled, and we will not come back without them." That is definitely one option mentioned in Chazal, but in the same places. And in fact, what most of the post games seem to conclude is that's not how it's actually going to happen, or that's one model, but there is a second model. And it's interesting how we seem to latch on to potentials, options, when sometimes in the same exact place. I, I don't think that he's different. necessarily looking into uh, just latching on to
0: a potential or an option. He's, he's reading the Gemara in a specific way. And the conclusion of the Gemara is that even according to the Dea that says that we will return without Chuva, it doesn't mean that, it, the one way to read it is that it doesn't mean that we won't do chuva, it's that we won't do chuva willingly, but rather the Gemara in Sanhedrin over there says that that they will have xeros as bad as those of Haman, and that will cause us to do Chuva and then we'll return. So so you could understand the Gemara that that chuva that is a prerequisite, la halacha, if, in quotations, if you want to call that la halacha. So I don't think that necessarily, I think the gdolim, because they're gedolim, are not less complex, but they are being machria in trying to understand the necessary things that we need to do in order to reach our purpose as the Jewish people. And the Rebbe the which was reaching on the fact that we need to do chuva. And I don't, Personally, I don't necessarily disagree with that being a fundamental process of Geulah. I think that there's many, many psukim that demonstrate that way, and Gemara's, and, and, and it definitely even according to the Gemara, that there might be another option, or the way to read the Gemara to say that there's an option of Geulah without Shuvah, it's definitely not the ideal way of Geulah. It's definitely not the best.
1: That, that is, like you said, one way of reading that Gemara there, the, the Yerushalmi, which brings up the same exact Machloket, does not even ha- have that way of reading the Gemara. There's a Machloket in how to understand the Bavli. There's not a Machloket in how to understand the Yerushalmi that just assumes that Tshuva is not going to be necessary. And the overwhelming Rishonim who comment on it assume that Tshuva is not necessary. So, it, and even if it was split 50-50. But you look at what's going on, you want to say that Okay, I guess Mitzias is machria, the fact that this is happening, but it's not even split 50-50. It's, it's the overwhelming shittahs, historically, has not seen tshuva as a prerequisite for, for the gula.
0: I don't think that... So I think that, that, that it's too complex to say it's a binary either-or of whether or not tshuva is necessary or not necessary for geula. I think that in the end of the day, what we're kind of promoting here is the concept that processes are much more complex than either it is miraculous or it's not miraculous. Either it is Yad Hashem or not Yad Hashem. Either it is the Gula or not the Gula, It is Tshuva or it's not Tshuva. I think that in the end of the day, Chuva is clearly, and I don't think any of the Rishonim or the Tanayim who bring up this Machlokas can speak about Gula as having nothing to do with Tshuva. Everybody agrees that tshuva is part of the process. The question is whether or not we would come to a state where God would just have to remove us from the exile because of an existential crisis. And whether or not there can be an option of geula without tshuva. L'kulei Alma, there there is an option of geula with tshuva. Everyone agrees that geula comes along with tshuva. Is there an option of geula without Shuvah? That's the question of the gemara over there, and that's where the rishonim say yes, there is an option. But geula does include a process of repentance, a process of returning back to who we are and to what we are and to what we're meant to be. Just the question is whether or not it's going to be forced or not as an option. Like everything else, like Mm -hmm. seemingly that would be a similar similar situation to the gemara uh, to the midrash that talks about how the, the Yitzya Mitzrayim happened early because we reached the 49th level of Tuma, and if we had tipped over to the 50th level of Tuma, then we would never have been able to return, uh, at, to come back. And so therefore there was an existential, we just needed to get out, that was taking place. So the question, I think, in the Gemara and Edrin is not about what is the way Geula should take place. And the Rebbe Lubavitch would take the position of Geula should be a process of tshuva. And that's what the Psukimint Varmim, Pashas Vayelech, say, the Shavta of the is part of the return to the land. That is the way it's meant to be. Can there theoretically be a Geula without Shuva? I think that's possible. That's 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 more, I think, the correct reading
1: of the Gemara and the Rishonim. I think the, Gemara, the Gemara comes in from the approach of... I'm, I'm not even so sure. I do have to look back at it. I'll say I do have to look back at it. But... But I think the Gemara, if I recall correctly, I, my understanding of the Gemara was that it, would dis, it was a discussion about the absolute nature of Ge'ula, as opposed to uh, the nature of Chuva or... or it, it, the question was, can... will the Ge'ula happen regardless? If I recall correctly, the Gemara is dealing with whether I, the Gaula will I, happen regardless. I agree regardless.
0: With that. I, I, I agree with that that, that the, the machlokis is about whether or not ge'ula is a necessary end to history or whether or not it is a dependent end to history. And in terms of that machlokis, the hakhra is, it is a necessary end to history. It needs, the world is heading in that direction of a direction of development to perfection and a time of ge'ula an ideal time, whether or not, and and, hu- and and even more so, human choice is not the deciding factor on whether or not it will happen or not, but it will happen. And that's kind of the shita that says the tshuva is not necessary. But to believe, if, if that means, that there is, that, that tshuva does not have a place, according to that opinion,
1: within the process of Chuva, I think is incorrect. Certainly. No, I, I definitely agree to that point. Chuva is an tshuva is definitely a part of geula I don't think they I mean, argue that I, I, but I, I, I don't I'll think give that's you an example capitalism.
0: does Bell. every child have to grow up sure it is the, it is the natural process meaning I guess like, you can say that some people never grow up but eventually people grow up the question is whether or not they do it on their own terms in a very in a seamless way in a productive way in a way that doesn't have a lot of contention with their parents and teachers and peers throughout their teenage years and when a parent or a teacher says you got to grow up what they're not they're not saying that if you don't consciously grow up you'll never become an adult eventually you're going to be 50 years old like it's going to happen but but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be part of parcel in the maturity process and make conscious decisions and realizations throughout your your throughout the years in order to make the process um, and and that growing up is not also includes a human and a and a choice based uh, process. Mm-hmm.
1: If we can circle back to uh, circle back to the initial topic, I want to try to get to two more points. First of all, we mentioned. That.
0: So, so meaning, I think just to, just to circle back uh, consciously, we we're, 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 were talking about whether or not this is the process or not the process, uh, whether or not uh, whether whether or not the process is supposed to be miraculous or not miraculous, and I think that I think that kind of the, the fundamental question that we have not yet fully answered was. Why do we want this process even to take place? Why is Geula a return back to a land? We said, we. I think we came to some sort of conclusion that return back to a nation gives us the ability to demonstrate the divinity and godliness and Torah values to the world in a much more powerful, uh, powerful way. But that answers our question of nation, but it doesn't necessarily answer our question of land. Why does it need a specific place? So let, let's go back to that. As you continue from there so first I
1: want to talk about the difference <clears throat> between being individuals and being a nation and perhaps what it's and and perhaps the role that the land would then serve with making that distinction because what, what I mentioned from the Ramban was that in Chutz L'Aretz, you know it's much harder to recognize God's hand through the behaviors of individuals. But in Eretz Yisrael, you can see God's hands through the behaviors of the nation. What you mentioned um, in the name of Rav Cook is that Eretz Yisrael affords us the opportunity to uh, basically display all aspects of human life in the divine light because the National platform gives you affords you more opportunities of you know to to express aspects of human life than the individual platform does right like give gave you a divine government a divine army a divine anything that takes more than one person <laughs> which is a tremendous part of our lives uh, needs a collective in order to display how to do it uh, godly and that's what Eretz Israel affords so I want to take maybe one step back before we take one step forward which is just to to show more deeply the link between seeing Eretz Yisrael as a platform for a nation as opposed to outside of Eretz Yisrael as a platform that only offers uh, individuals uh, you know, a, a, a certain form of a vodah. So, just probably the first place to look is in Lech Lecha, right, in the first... Uh, it's interesting, I, I like to start off uh, classes on this topic by asking, you know, imagine your God or you're creating your own religion or whatever it is, you're coming to your first member and you are giving him the first thing that is just that is necessary to do for your religion, right? So, you know, you maybe assume belief. Believe in one God. Maybe you take a big one like, uh, don't kill or, you know, no idol worship, whatever it may be. Even myself, and I, I, I'm a self-described, you know, pretty big Zionist. <laughs> Would not have guessed, and still am not so sure <laughs> that telling Abraham to go to Eretz Israel was like the clear best first commandment for the founder of the Jewish people. It's it or, or you know, it's, it's it's almost shocking that this is what God starts with. He doesn't even start with I am God. He doesn't start with yes eratodibron. He doesn't start with an introduction, I am God, continue to believe in me, believe in no other god says, Avraham, go to Eretz Israel, or it really says, Avraham, go to this land I will show you, which ends up being Eretz Israel. we'll talk there, basically. And it's, it's, it's almost shocking, even for a Zionist, <laughs> this should be shocking, that it's the first thing God tells Avraham to do. But I think the next Pasuk really answers the question, if you know how to read it, which is, v'es chalagoy right? right? In this land, I will make you a great nation. From there, we see this intrinsic link with needing to be an Eretz Israel in order to be a nation, and that whatever God wanted Avraham to do, it was just not relevant in the place that he was.
0: So I think there's also, I mean, the point that you're trying to make might be that it's not just that it wouldn't be relevant before, but it's also the goal is not to create a new ideology, but it's to create a people that are a vehicle for this new ideology. And and before, and, and the Kuzari speaks about this as well, And the difference between Avram and the previous believers in God, like Noach or Adam or, or Hanoch, where they believed in God as individuals, shame, ever, there were people that believed in God before Avram. The Chiddush of Avram, the, the novel... Uh, kind of the second, the new, the, the the new paradigm that Avram was creating was a national expression of these beliefs, and that's why land and nation were the first two things that were given to Avram because that is how this message is going to be propagated in the fullest and and best way. But we still haven't yet answered the question of why this land specifically. Why not just create a nation in any land? Meaning, you have to be a people, and if we get kicked out of there, we, we go somewhere else, and we can be a people there. But we've never we've never um, uh, we've never submitted to that to that paradigm. We never tried to be a separate nation within another land, and it always seemed to even whether or not we wanted to or different or didn't. Historically, we've always returned back to this specific land. As the bastion of our civilization and our and our and our and our divine civilization that we're trying to create, so why specifically this land? That's our question.
1: So it's an interesting question to to answer, and it kind of you can ask a similar question about just about anything in Torah. Um, You know, why specifically these mitzvot? Why specifically? us as a nation, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much of an actual answer I have behind, you know, beyond because God said so, to that exact question. But I do have different ways of conceptualizing the point that I think are are worth bringing up. So I don't.
0: I don't think that that meaning God just said so is is an answer. It, it's and and I think that it's. Uh, it's an important answer. For example, if we would take uh, the, the concept of Shabbos as Shabbos being one day a week, which is La Hashem that is meant to be focused on, uh, on, on godliness and not the mundane world and on, on our values. So you can answer, well, okay, why is it that it's, that it's Saturday and not Monday? Or why? Why is it specifically that day? Why is it not just any day of the week? And it's not. And, and just as in our in the original story, we spoke about how the how the guy was asking why can't we just move the Beit Hamikdash five hundred meters to the left and then we'd be all good? Well, we can also answer that every Shabbos and say why is it that at at eight eight forty three in the evening, if I turn on the light, or I cook something, or I do any of the thirty nine melachos of Shabbos, I am violating the sabbath and then at at 8 44 one minute later i'm no longer violating the sabbath and it's perfectly fine and it's a completely permissible act to do and the question is why these 24 25 hours specifically are sanctified meaning we can answer the question of why we need a day that is sanctified and give some reason but why this one well it had to be one but it has to be specific Which one? So, in other words, I'm kind of clarifying the question a little bit. Asking the question of why specifically this one is a different question to asking why do we need specifically one? Mm -hmm. And so, answering the question of why this one, I don't know if we'll be able to answer, and that's kind of like you said, other than God said so, just like Shabbos, and just like the Jewish people, and just like, but we need one. We know, we need, but the question now is, why do we need a specific land, And not just any land.
1: So maybe let's borrow from the Shabbos example and try to give the answer that we know about Shabbos in a similar vein to Eretz Yisrael. Meaning, why this specific day? I think every Jewish kid knows that this is the day that God rested, right? Meaning that you know, if it were on Monday, that wasn't the day that God rested, right? So, so there is something significant that. You know, happened, or that we're trying to represent a deep idea behind the choice of the day, uh, which serves as our explanation so, to uh, the significance of Shabbos, and we can give a similar thing for Eretz Right,
0: I think that that I, I, that possibly we can we can kind of. Uh, tweak that paradigm. It's not, it's not necessarily a historical event that we're commemorating, but when we say that God created, or rested, or the day, the seventh day was a day that God created rest, is, is not a historical th- uh, event that we are commemorating every Shabbat, but rather it is a intrinsic reality that was infused into that day from the time of creation. It's, it was created as the Sabbath, as opposed to, it is the Sabbath because God rested.
1: Right, in which case the question for Eretz Yisrael will be, okay, how is this created intrinsically as the place for our national, you know, display of uh, Kaddish Baruch Hu to the world? Or, you know, some similar formulation to that.
0: It seems that you're alluding to the Mishnah in Mesecha Yuma about how the Eben the Eshtia, meaning the, 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 the Temple Mount, is the place in which reality came from. That all of the world started at that spot, and that being kind of the beginning, and the land of Israel being the surrounding area of where reality started, and I think that it, it's a it's a fascinating concept that this gemara, that this mishnah is bringing up, and the gemara uh, uh, expands on that. Eretz Yisrael or the the Temple Mount Tzion um, is the place in which reality started. Um, what does that mean? The place or or the the it's the it's the, um, it's the cornerstone of reality. So I think that, that maybe to give a little bit of a, a, a philosophical conceptualization of the notion of a place that is meant to symbolize the beginning of reality, I think that if we think about any, let's say, any building that, or any, anything that people want to build, there's, when does it start? When does the building process start? So at a cornerstone laying ceremony, they place the cornerstone down, and they're all so excited that that they place it. Now, obviously, it's just one brick in in, in, a, in an empty in an empty field. Um, is that the beginning of, of the building, and they and they celebrate it? I don't think because it's the beginning, but because it's the beginning of the manifestation of it. Obviously, the beginning of the process of building was where they had all these meetings to discuss the goals and the vision of the synagogue, the school, the institution, the building, the the condo project, whatever it is, there was a vision behind it. And the place in which that vision began to manifest is the place in which it is closest to the vision itself. And, And I think that every institution that's built every everything that's built in the world if you let's say so you build a school so there's a vision for what the school is supposed supposed to supposed to achieve and whether or not in 50 years from now when the school looks back and say did we exactly achieve the vision of our founders usually it's probably not exactly It, it, it there was ups and downs and we had to make some changes and things weren't working out as planned and so reality manifests itself in a in a complex manner after that initial beginning of the building process. Now, if you want to go back, and if we if, let's take this to a much bigger and, and, and global uh, vision, and we talk about God's creation of the world as having a purpose, and God having a vision to what the world is supposed to be like, and as history goes on, after the world was created and all, of the, and all of reality came forth, is that vision manifesting itself perfectly according to the original vision? Obviously, through choice and through giving us that choice, kiv it's not. And if we want, as human beings, to tap into or to reconnect with that original vision of the purpose of the world, we should go back to that original spot. And I think that that's what Yerushalayim and the, the, what, the, what the Gemara is trying to, to signify by speaking about the land of Israel and Sion and, and, the, and the Temple Mount as the beginning of reality. It is the place that is, reconnects us to the why behind the what of the world. It reconnects us to the ideal and the vision of what the purpose of this world is supposed to be. And if we want to reconnect to that, we have to go back to that spot. And as the people that so deeply see it as our responsibility to carry out that ideal in the world, we have to be so connected to the place in which it started because that's how we go back to idealizing that there is some kind of purpose and and and, and divine purpose uh, uh, the divine will that predates the manifestation of reality that we live
2: in—not only the, the genesis of the whole world, but our specifically our genesis as a Jewish people with Avraham and Yitzchak—and our that kind of our devotion to God, also generated from that exact same spot. So, as a nation and as a as a and as the world at large, all comes back down to Sion.
1: I want to make an additional couple points that I think are significant expressions of this idea, which, by the way, worth mentioning. I don't think that we're making a necessarily geographical point about the foundation of the universe, but rather an ideological, conceptual point about the starting place of the universe. And I want to make a, a couple more points that I think are expressions of this exact idea. First of all, uh, first of all, if it is you know the if it's the the, the point from where the world began, or the, the point from where the physical universe started. Again, not a geographic point, but a conceptual point, so then it's it's basically the first physical place when before it, nothing was physical, right? It is the advent of physicality, and all of the physical universe that we have afterward expanded from this place in, and if that's so, then it should basically be seen as a gateway the entrance point from the spiritual into the physical, right? And that's literally or what we say. Or from the physical
0: into the spiritual.
1: Right, which is that's literally like, what we say about Har Abayim. It's shara right? it, it. this This is what Yaakov says. This is Shar HaShemayim. <laughs> what, what does he mean? It's shara HaShemayim. Because if it's the first physical place to exist, Right? Then it is the it's the doorway from the spiritual to the physical, or from the physical to the spiritual. It's a, a just, way. Just to push this, conceptual. push this
0: further. I think that meaning sometimes we talk about these very conceptual ideas. It seems that like okay, we, we it could be, but but I think that this is one concept that has proven itself throughout history. The 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 Kuzuri points out, and and the reason why the Temple Mount is one of the most contentious or the most contentious spot in the world is because. Many religions point to it and say that is our ideal place. That place represents our ideals and our 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 life our values to the to the utmost uh, degree, and therefore we want it. And the Kuzari says the reason why is because what we're describing it is the place that represents living and manifesting the original ideals. Now, different people kind of understand what those ideals are differently, but they all see Yerushalayim as that spot. There's an incredible midrash that says that Yerushalayim gets its name from two great people. One was from Shem, who called the place Shalem, as it says in 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 Parshas uh, Parsha Lech Lecha that it was that his name that it was Malki Tzedek Melech Shalem, the king of Shalem, whose Yerushalayim was called Shalem, and Avraham, in the end of Parshas calls it. Uh, Yir, Hashem Yir and y- y- Avram calls it Yire'eh, and shame calls it Shalem, and therefore we put the two together, and that's where we get the name Yerushalayim. The, um, I believe it's the Sheim Ishmul that explains that they both understand Yerushalayim in the same way, but it manifests itself differently. Both Avram and shame understand that Yerushalayim is meant to represent what they believe is, the, is their purpose in life. Shame, who saw the world fall apart before the, before the Mabul, he sees the land of Israel as being, or Yerushalayim, as being what represents his life mission of shlemut, of achdut, of unity, of humankind coming together. Because the world fell apart because of that, because of the opposite of that, and so he sees his life's mission as bringing humanity together. And therefore he calls Yerushalayim, the place that, that is supposed to represent ideal living, as shalem. Avram, who is fighting against idol worship, sees his purpose in life as bringing Yerat Hashem, godliness to the world, so he calls that spot Yeret. Both of them see Yerushalayim as the symbolic manifestation of ideal living, it just comes differently. Now we take both of those ideals and we put them together and say Yerushalayim, but it's not just Avram and Shem. it's throughout human history, people see Jerusalem as the spot that most represents what they believe in. And that's where the contention comes from. So we're not speaking, even though we could say, oh, this is a conceptual idea and it's an abstract idea. It's a very um, um, evidence-based, or we can see in, 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 throughout human history that this place has those attributes and causes people to fight over it because they see it as the spot which, which is meant to symbolize ideal living.
1: So the, the Midrash is a very interesting law show, not just calling it the cornerstone of the foundation the place that the world was expanded from and not even just calling it the center uh of the world but specifically the tibur of the world right olam is the is the lashon of the midrash right and and so what's the connection between being the center of the world and the the, the tibur like the the, the the belly button of the of the world is this is the place that the, you know, that this is the place that connects, let's say, the fetus to the mother. Right? And so the fetus, through, through the umbilical cord, gets its sustenance from the mother. In which case, the Eretz Yisrael is not just the, you know, the gateway for us to reach the divine, but it's also the, the place through which the divine is funneled from its source inward, basically to the rest of the world. Um, all of the Kedusha comes from Torah. Meaning it's it is the foundational point where all spiritual sustenance from the you know, is funneled into the world. I think there's another conceptualization of the same exact idea.
0: And and, and I think just to clinch everything off. I, I think that it's important to note. I we'll
1: have to make one more point after
0: it. Uh, and then so I, I I don't know. Should I make the point first? <laughs> uh, I, I think I think that that we still haven't yet fully cons- answered the question of okay, so this place represents that, and that's wonderful. But why do we need even a place to represent that? Why is it that God created such a world where that we needed a specific place in order to connect the spiritual to the physical, or to manifest the divine will or vision behind the world? Why, why can't it be at every spot? We can do that, and, and I think that that this this comes to the Kuzari's understanding of, um, or it, it, later on, there's a Tosfot that actually mentions this, and it's brought down in the Rizal Sfarim, the, the concept, and it's brought down and written beforehand in the Kuzari, the concept of Ashan, the concept of a a a the, the necessity of reality having some kind of um, uh, how he calls it, uh, reality needing a soul. And the, the, the problem of, of an infinite God, a God that is so separate from our reality in every way, creating a reality that is finite and time-bound and a timeless God, there need, in order for us to have any ability, to connect to godliness and to the divine, which is beyond time and beyond space, is if time and space has a manifestation of the divine within it. Just as a human being, as a physical human being, and has a soul in order, and the consciousness of our soul, in order for us to live as spiritual beings within our physical uh, and physical bodies, so too time and space, which are both very physical attributes of reality, need to have some kind of divine uh, divine presence within them and the soul of time says Tosvos in the Gemar and Chagiga, and we actually say this on in our Shabbos that there's there's this there's that 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 the that Shabbos is the soul of time and gives time and the, the time is something that separates us from the reality of God godliness because it's finite and it's time-bound and it's not the reality which god lives in and what allows us to connect back to the divine is through the shabbos the neshama of time and just as there is a neshama there's a soul of time so too there's a soul of physical space and the soul of physical space is the land of israel and just like and and therefore those are our vehicles by us being able to find or connect to d- the divine spirituality spiritual within the physical world, that's how the physical world can become spir- uh, a spiritual and divine place.
1: The the, the Maharal links this whole question back to something we mentioned before, which is the conceptualization of khalisrael Israel as a nation as opposed to individuals. Um, and what he mentions is uh, as is follows, meaning... As, like we said before, individuals can accomplish certain goals even in Chutz larets But as a nation, as a collective, we accomplish our national mission uh, only in Eretz Yisrael. And that has a, you know, a, a qualitatively uh, better uh, uh, accomplishment for, for all the reasons that, that we'd already mentioned. But Baral is a fascinating way of connecting the points of seeing us as a nation functioning as a collective and the point of this being the center of the world, the world, you know, the, the place from which the, the universe was expanded. Uh, and he explains as follows, and if I had a, a, a diagram, it would be much easier, right? But imagine you have a, a, a circle and a center point, and imagine you have lines running through the circle, right? If you look at anywhere in that diagram, If you were to identify line A, line B, line C at anywhere in that diagram, you would notice divergent lines. You would notice individual, separate lines. But if you look at the center of their divergence, it's one single point. Two different lines, lines A, B, C, and D, all have independent, you know, identifying features, but in the center, they are one unified point. The Maharal uses this to explain some of the Gemara's terminology of the difference between Talmidech Ham in Eretz Yisrael, and Ham in Babel, in Babel working kind of against each other, and in Eretz Yisrael, they're Chaveirim, they're working together, they're linked, connected in some way, and he says, yeah, because Eretz is the center of the world. And like divergent lines, the point in which all things connect is at the center, is at the center. So he says, the spiritual center of the world is that point from which the universe was expanded, in which case, the spiritual unity of all things must happen at that center. And uh, just a way of conceptualizing that is let's say in Chutz Laaretz, in Chutz Laaretz, you know, uh, I am Ephroni the Jew, and this is Rav Mezer the Jew uh, and in Eretz Israel, it's these are the Jews, right? Meaning we are identified by what makes us separate from each other outside the center, but the center has a way of of grouping us by what we have in common. In that this is the place where where we where where we connect is uh, is is noticeable. The Maharal explains that as the the conceptual grounds for seeing collectivism in Eretz Yisrael as opposed to in any other place. <laughs>
0: Good to be back.